0: Last week we began a study together of what it means to be a church in relationship with one another. There's a key phrase in the New Testament uh, that we'll be looking at in the coming weeks. It's the phrase, one another. It's used some 60 times to describe relationships in the body of Christ. Because we're a family, and one of the key things about any family is that not everybody can have their way, like the, the video portrayed. You just can't. Uh, mom makes something for dinner. It's what everybody eats. Uh, you can't all go on the vacation you want to go. You go together uh, on the same vacation. That's part of family life. And so we want to uh, explore this concept of life together as one another in a true New Testament sense. As as I begin to kind of get a a grasp of the different times that the term one another is used in the New Testament, begin to notice that uh, there are some that are about how we think, others are how we act. Where would you suppose is the priority? Where do you start? You start with how you think about one another, so we want to do that today if you could be turning in your Bibles to ephesians we 'll be touching down on a few places and in the book of Ephesians, which tells us a lot about the body of Christ. But how do we think about ourselves in regard to one another? Author Paul David Tripp has used the phrase to describe us as glory junkies that 's what the human Being really is. As a glory junkie, we would like people to pay attention to us, people to notice us, people to give us credit, people to say, oh, that's a really smart thing that you just said. We want the attention. The opposite of that is the phrase humility toward one another. I've taken that phrase from one of the last passages that we'll look at today in 1 Peter 5 5, where it says that we should clothe ourselves with humility toward one another. To get a sense of what it means to be humble towards one another, we have to first of all think of how do we relate to Jesus Christ. And that's where I want to touch down at the last couple of verses of chapter 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians, because they're like little separate units and they bring the focus on Christ each time. So in uh, chapter 1, verse 22, it says, And God placed all things under his, meaning Jesus' feet, all things, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Humility starts with understanding Christ's importance. And the first issue here, I believe, in this in this uh, couple of verses, is that we need to be aligned under the head who is Jesus Christ. God placed Him over all things, and. Then he placed him over the church as the head. Last week, our, as we started this study or introduced the study, we talked about that frequent illustration in the New Testament of Christ being the head of the body. So we are hands, feet, eyes, ears. We are all parts of the body. The key issue is that for us to have any kind of a sense of understanding of humility, we must first of all understand ourselves in alignment under Christ it says he's in charge of all things and he's in charge of the church. So, so Christ is ruler over all and then he's ruler over the church. What's the connection? I believe it's this that when God wants to accomplish something on earth, he assigns it to the church because we're his family. and we are to be under alignment in him so we would respond to him and say yes. When he says we, we need to make disciples of all nations, we would respond and then he would enable. And I think that's why God has given us opportunities in Ozaki County, I believe. He placed us here to communicate the gospel to people that come in our doors, to people we are, know in the neighborhood. I think that's why he's honored our opportunity even in our community to have an uh, after-school after program with, with kids at one of our local uh, grade schools because he's assigning the gospel to us as a church. He assigns us to care for one another. He assigns us to care for others in the community. There was a group making meals here last last Saturday, distributing to people who could appreciate that. He assigns us relationships in the body of Christ as we meet together in an adult Bible fellowship or a men's group or a women's group because God is accomplishing something and so he is directing the church to do it. So first of all, we must see ourselves in alignment under him if we are to be humble uh, towards one another. Humility starts with vertically being humble before him. Secondly, let's go to the end of chapter 2. Now instead of seeing ourselves simply as under his authority, what is it that he has done? He has placed us into a position of cooperation with one another, and it's it's how God is worshipped today. We'll pick it up in verse 20, referring to the church uh, with another metaphor as a family. He then goes to a metaphor of a building, a building built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone, chief cornerstone. In him, Christ, the whole building joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in Him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. So picture all of us as now not body parts and a head, but rather a chief cornerstone, the the foundation of a building, Christ and the apostles, and then we are building blocks put together as a place where God dwells. We've often said the reason there is no temple in the New Testament is because we are the temple. And sometimes we picture the temple as being something very individualistic because indeed it says that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. But that's not the only way He used God, God's word uses the temple. We are a temple together. So together we form the temple, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. And, and, and the problem with the, with the video was that the actor is portraying the fact that we want it our way. Picturing, if you will, the church as a a spiritual restaurant where we can go and order off a menu instead of eating what mom makes. In the old days when you had a single TV in the household, right? Three channels. Everybody had to decide together what are we going to watch. Now everybody's got their own devices. Everybody can watch whatever they want whenever they want to watch it. If if that's the way God designed church, then we should we should do our worship with an individual playlist, and uh, you can you can you can log in online to your your favorite uh, best preacher that that most connects with you. But instead, what you've done this morning is you've traveled to come together to sing songs that you didn't pick, a sermon that I chose to present the way I'm presenting it, and to be with people that decided to come at the same time as you. There's some real value in that. That is the design of God that together then we would be doing things that would exalt Him as a worship effort together. There's a reason we need to be Together, We're built together to become a dwelling where God lives by His Spirit. Chapter 2, if you look back in uh, verses 11 and following, the the issue here is that God has joined together uh, Jew and Gentile, which was a big, radical deal, because they had always seen themselves as separate. We are God's chosen people. The law came to us. Everything surrounds us. But now he is saying that that that, that barrier, the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down because Christ with Jew and Gentile is forming one body and that body now can honor him and is being built together into this temple. So you can't look down uh, with your, your racial animosities at those people that you've always kind of viewed askance because they ate unclean food all the time and you knew that was wrong. But now to realize that in Christ there is no one who is better, Jew and Gentile forming one body or one temple. So to function in the body of Christ together, we must recognize that God puts us together in a place as the place where he is worshipped, though we are different, different. One of the reasons why Open Door has chosen to focus on adult Bible fellowships First, kind of as, a, as the major way we we do church, instead of a small group ministry model, they're both legitimate. They're both good, but one reason is our conviction that we need to be joined together with people who are different, not just people who would be our five or six favorites. There is some real growth that takes place in small group ministry because you you can you can uh, get more uh, personal and, and share more deeply and that's why we love to see men's women's groups and other groups develop that are small and have that but we would believe that we need to have relationships that are in, in a group that is big enough that we know people who are different people who we would not even naturally be drawn to and, we, and so we desire to be uh, joined together in ministries where there's somebody you wouldn't naturally like okay and so if you find that, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Um, we are different, and thus we are also imperfect. Imperfect. Once in a while when new people uh, visit Open Door Bible Church, uh, they notice something they really appreciate, and so they might tell me, Boy, I just really love this church, and, and, and I really appreciate the affirmation, I, 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 I promise you. But once in a while, just a couple of times, it seems like someone who is brand new is like effusive over the top. And I'm thinking, well, okay, we're trying to be biblical and hopefully we're caring. But there was something about how effusive their praise was of our church that bothered me. And I realized later what it was is I knew it wasn't sustainable. It would only be a matter of time, and the bubble would burst. And almost without fail, within a couple of months, we never see those people again. Because they will have run into something that didn't fit their first impression. I'm glad we gave them a good first impression. But it is not sustainable. We're not a perfect church, which probably makes it perfectly what we need. (laughs) I've been reading a couple of different books recently about the church One is an old one by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a courageous German pastor during the the time of Nazi Germany. In fact, he was was executed at age 39 uh, in a a concentration camp, but... um, he managed to write and, and influence a lot of people uh, in the, years, the few years that he had. And he, he, he wrote a, a section, I've got, I got a couple of quotes here from from this book, about embracing imperfections in the church. He said, The serious Christian, for the first time in a Christian community, is likely to bring with him a very definite idea of what Christian life together should be and try to realize it. But God's grace speedily shatters such dreams. <laughs> In other words, that's a good thing. Surely we must be overwhelmed by a great disillusionment with Christians in general, and, if we are fortunate, with ourselves. Only that fellowship which faces such disillusionment with all its unhappy and ugly aspects begins to be what it should be in God's sight. We start to see all the the cracks. And then finally, every human wish that is injected into the Christian community as a hindrance to genuine community. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it to be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He sometimes sense that in a, in a church where we're all just trying to be so perfect. He acts as if he is the creator of the Christian community, as if his dream binds men together. When things do not go his way, he calls the effort a failure. There's a place at which we don't glorify. And it's not, this isn't about glorifying sin. That's not what he I mean. But it means to embrace and acknowledge that we are all struggling, and that becomes actually the basis of our growth. So, this is not a dismal view of the church, it's a realistic view. Uh, parents often. Uh, we might remark to one another that it's it's important that uh, our children have siblings. Okay? One of the value of siblings is each kid grows up knowing you can't always get your way. And someone's going to have to share the last Little piece of something, some dessert. Someone's got to, to wait on someone to the sister to have the dance class over, or the brother who's still in football practice. And you're going to have to forgive, and you're going to have to uh, accommodate one another. And that is actually key to our growth. And in fact, that's why I believe the one another's become so powerful in the New Testament because they are impossible unless they are empowered by the Holy Spirit, as we will see uh, even yet this morning. But the Holy Spirit alone can give us something supernatural to connect with one another in spite of our flaws. Fifteen times in the New Testament you find the term love one another. It must be really hard for it to emphasize that, because love is sacrifice, so to sacrifice for one another... If you have not ever been connected close enough to a church family to be hurt, and hurt so that it hurts, I actually feel sorry for you. Because you will not connect closely. You will not have close relationships. You will not grow unless some of those things happen. You will be stagnant. And spiritually immature, and you'll stay a bit aloof and isolated. Or you might develop a sense of personal pride that, well, I'm doing it right, and these people, there's a problem with these people. That's why humbling ourselves before one another is such a big deal because it forces us, as we get close, to acknowledge, I failed, I'm sorry. You acknowledge your confession, apologies, one another. That's, that's real life. And we move on. We forgive because God forgives. So humbling ourselves before one another begins with seeing ourselves in alignment under the head and then cooperating together closely enough, realizing that with all of our differences and imperfections, that is how we learn to really worship him. Finally then, going to the end of chapter 3 in Ephesians, we see that this is how we bring glory upward to Christ as we relate to one another. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory, where? In the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations 2019, forever and ever. Amen. I I, I wonder if it's almost like we we should smile at this because Paul seems to say, hey, the greatest miracle of all is that Christ would be glorified by the church. You know, all of us with our imperfections. Christ is actually glorified by that. Look at chapter 3, verse 10. His intent that now was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God would be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Even the angels are watching to saying, this is amazing that such different imperfect sinners are displaying the manifold wisdom of God. Manifold has, like like manifold on a car, many different in one The differences actually brings special glory to God. So, because God's able to do more than you can even imagine, that's why he can bring glory through the church. Practically, how does that happen? Did you ever wonder why then Ephesians 4 and 5, it's all about relationships. That's where we're going to find the one another's. Because if we bring ourselves under alignment under the head and we see ourselves as connected forming the the core place where Christ is worshipped and we desire then to bring glory to Him then... Our relationships will be affected. So, chapter 4, walk worthy of the calling. And it begins to describe this unity of the faith and how we become mature and utilizing different gifts and, and, and put off your old self, verse 22 of chapter 4, and, and stop lying and speak truth and, and uh, <coughs> don't let unwholesome words come out of your mouth and put away all bitterness and rage and forgive. Do You see, it's all relationship. The way Christ is glorified is to see the messiness of the body of Christ and say, but I'm not going to bow to my nature, my fleshly nature. I am going to, as we'll soon see, walk in the Spirit. Chapter 5, live purely. have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of the world and making the most of every opportunity. But now come to chapter 5, verse 8. And we find a key issue, and that is the power that pro- is provided so that we can live miraculously in this relationship with one another. And it will not only transform us, it will transform our marriages, it will transform our parenting, it will transform our life in the world working. It, it is mind-blowing, radically transformed because we see ourselves humbly as we're under alignment before Christ. Let's read verses 18 through 21, which, as Paul wrote in the Greek language, was actually one long sentence uh, originally. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak, or you could say speaking, because it's really a comma, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs singing and making music in your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. These are evidences of a Spirit-controlled church. So verse 18 is first of all the main command to be filled with the Spirit, which really means to be controlled by the Spirit. The reason the Drunkenness is brought up. Is it's an illustration that just as when alcohol controls you, when you yield to it and you do things you would not otherwise do, likewise when you yield to the Holy Spirit and you're under His control, you'll be able to do things you would not otherwise do, things that glorify Him. So it's it's a, an illustration by by opposites. And then there are f- these these participles grammatically, which tells us the results of being filled by the Spirit. If we, if we consciously, and I think this is like a, a most basic issue in the Christian life, is to uh, see ourselves as needing to yield to the Spirit because we are not naturally anything but our flesh. And it's going to be anger and chaos and all these kind of things. But under the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. So, But we must consciously yield to the Spirit. And then what he focuses on is how our church life, our one another will be transformed. And so we have these, these, this series of, of things that will happen, I think specifically as we gather and relate to each other. So this isn't like individual things that might God might want to do in you. That's Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Those are, those are personal things. This, these are corporate things that will happen for us. One is we will speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So the, here's the basically the four things. Singing to encourage other believers. Singing to worship the Lord. Giving thanks to God. And then finally submitting, which is like the, the foundational one, giving up our desires for the desires of others because we worship Christ and not ourselves. Take a look at the last one first. Submitting to one another in reverence for Christ. There's a connection between the vertical and the horizontal. The reason we would submit to one another in humility is because of reverence for Christ. When you see siblings who get along, Siblings who accommodate, forgive, show grace, respect, they've also understood respect for parents. Because if you are respecting your parents, you learn to respect one another. They're connected. And so submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, seeing yourself in alignment under Christ. And some of these things miraculously begin to happen. One is, the first two are about singing. Uh, These are the the same songs, but there's two things that happen. We sing to encourage other believers and we sing to worship. Did you know that as we we sing together, our purpose is to encourage one another? Usually we see musical worship very individualistically. I'm here to Worship the Lord. That's the second thing he mentions. The first is that we are to speak to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. I think his way of saying doesn't matter what you're singing, but rather it matters why you are singing. In, uh, in the year 2000, we started uh, the second Sunday morning service, and one of the discussions was, should we have a traditional music service and a contemporary music service? And we decided for a number of reasons, but one of them was we didn't want to create a worship cafeteria. But rather, the point of singing is that we would, we would try to find you know, where, where we should be as a church, and then we all have to do it. Okay? Um, the purpose is to speak to one another and encourage one another. Have you ever sung enthusiastically along with a song in this room? that you didn't like because you knew that there were people in this room who would truly be ministered to by that song or that kind of song. That's when you've accomplished the first line. Speaking to one another. I want to encourage the people around me. That is why I think the second one makes sense, is because as we do that, we are singing and making melody in our hearts to the Lord. The first one is audible because, and by the way, you can't encourage others unless there's actual sound coming out of your mouth, okay? Because otherwise they don't know what's going on in your heart. So it takes actual, uh, uh, you know, sound. The second one is inaudible. The second one is invisible. And I think that's what the Lord sees, is that I am here singing with these people because I love these people. And that is my if it was only to worship the Lord, then we might as well just keep our playlist, sing in the shower, and maybe if there's one other Christian friend who likes all the same songs I do, we could do like carpool karaoke, and that could be our worship together because we like all the same stuff. But that's not how God put it together. He says, you've got to come together and sing my praises And then you come together and you give thanks to the Lord. There is something, it's it's not about just your private devotion giving thanks, but there's a special sense we give thanks right here because we look around we see what people have come through and we give thanks. Look what God did in this person's life. Look what God brought through this, this couple. This couple is still together. That's amazing. And we're giving thanks to the Lord. And, and, and then I might be giving thanks for just God's blessing to me because I see you know, that, that this person is struggling with this and my circumstances are better. Other times I'll look at it and say, I'm just thankful he's brought me through these circumstances and that, and that these people didn't have to go through that. And we're thankful for one another. And he is praised because we're doing this together. And then he says, Submitting to one another in reverence to Christ. Submitting to one another then becomes where we begin to give up our own desires and say, I want what's best for all the people in this room. And that becomes a passion of our heart. Uh, turn with me to, um, well actually no, I have this one on the screen here. Philippians 2. Humility means, I'll consider your needs more important than mine. Philippians 2, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, it's all a mindset first of all, regard one another as more important than yourselves. It doesn't say that there is an intrinsic greater or less value to any one believer. We're equal in the body of Christ, he we're worthy of him dying for us, right? But take a mindset that this person, I'm going to regard them as more important. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Is it possible? Is this doable? Well, yeah, have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. And you know where that passage goes. He gave up heaven, veiled his glory, became man, obedient to the point of death, death on the cross. Is he less than us? Of course not. He is preeminent over us. But that he illustrated what it means to regard others as more important. So he says it's even more important than me keeping my eternal glory and enjoying that in heaven. It's so important that I'm going to regard them as more important than me, Jesus was saying. And he goes to the cross in our place. So he says have, have that same mindset in, in you with one another. Uh, just a little side, if you, if you picked up the, uh, the handout I gave last week with supposedly all the one-anothers, I left this one out because most Bible translations just simply say uh, regard others as more important. But actually the, the, the Greek phrase, alelone, is there and, and this translation has it. But uh, that we should regard one another. So it's not just, again, it's not personal, just me. We're supposed to always think of ourselves in this Mutual relationship regarding one another as more important. Uh, along that, Romans 12:10 says to honor one another more than ourselves. It cannot be overstated that Christ must beam in, in, in glory when we consider others more important. If you look, if you're still in Ephesians, after saying submitting to one another in reverence for Christ, what's the next subject? Marriage. Because where else should we be considering the needs of others more important than our own than in marriage? And although we, we could discuss the, the, the order that God has designed of, 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 of uh, husbands ahead of the wife, like Christ is ahead of the church, and submitting in that sense, this is all introduced by this concept of submitting to one another, because even as as a wife submits to her husband in that divine order, what she's really saying is that his, his interests, his needs, are more important than mine, but it turns around, and then when it says, husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it, he's really saying the exact same thing with the exact same attitude. Her needs are more important than mine, just as Christ saw our needs more important than his, and A husband gives himself up, submitting his own desires for nourishing and cherishing her. And then out of that order comes the parenting. Caring most for their spiritual development and raising them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And out of that comes the submission that we, we give our bosses. All this because we've learned it by being under submission to Christ. Turn with me to 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5 towards the end of your New Testament before 1st and 2nd 3rd John verses 1 through 4 describe the elders of the church who would operate with humility not for greed not for power and control And then it says, young men, verse 5, in the same way as be submissive to those who are older. So young men in the church looking to elders and submitting themselves. But then it kind of goes the same progression as Paul does uh, in the passage of of, of Ephesians 5, where he says, all of you clothe yourself with humility towards one another. Why? Because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. So if you need some motivation... Realize God is looking at your humility before one another. Clothe yourself, though, with humility toward one another. This particular Greek term for clothing oneself is generally about clothing oneself as a slave, putting on an apron, putting on overalls. This is not getting dressed up for the king's banquet because you're so important. This is clothing yourself with work clothes, serving clothes. What does that suggest? That's the attitude. When you think of clothing yourself with humility, when we think of the body of Christ, foremost on our minds should be, how can I serve this body, this family? Let me suggest a kind of a mental, spiritual exercise. Somewhere before, between when you leave your house to come to church, and by the time you meet the first people here, don't you suppose it'd be good if we would, like, mentally clothe ourselves with humility towards one another? Put on work clothes. Take on the attitude of what can I do to encourage someone? Am I, is it listening to somebody instead of telling my own story? Is it is it praying for someone, asking about them? Is it? What is it? What, what? 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 God, how do you want to use me today to serve others? This idea of clothing yourself is a very deliberate thing. When you take the apron, you, you know you got to. There's a certain time you do that. Could it be that as you as you pull into a parking spot, here, that you spiritually change clothes? Maybe it's when you put it in park, and you say to yourself, or to the Lord, Lord. I want to clothe myself with humility so that you can use me in the family that you've placed me in this morning. And that we begin to adopt an attitude of humility, service for one another. And if we need any motivation, it would be, that's how Christ treated us. John 13, some months ago we were studying that uh, final discussion that Jesus had with the disciples uh, before he went to the cross, John 13 through chapter 17. But as you know, the evening began with a meal, the last Passover meal, even as we're celebrating communion, which is a part of that. And they came together, and uh, getting off the dusty streets, the thing that normally happened would be that uh, there would be a servant girl or boy who would wash the, the, people, the important people's feet. No one was assigned. No one was hired for that. It's just it was this, this, this private dinner with Jesus and his and his twelve disciples. And so they do what must have been awkward for them to guess there's no one to wash feet tonight and so we go and sit around, the, lay around the table like they did leaning on one side and with dirty feet. When you're laying on that side like that, you know, your dirty feet are kind of close to someone else's face who's down the line there and but no, none of them, none of them would say, I'll go get the water basin. But it was available. We know it was. Why? Because then Jesus did it. Jesus did it. Jesus rose from supper. So they ate the whole awkward meal with dirty feet. Jesus rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And there's a conversation that follows in which they're like, this this is so wrong. (laughs) He's our rabbi. Which was the point. And so at the end of that discussion, Jesus says, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. In other words, I am your authority. He's not, he's not backing down from that. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do, just as I have done to you. So will we take that mindset, that posture, submitting to one another, clothing ourselves with humility towards one another, washing one another's feet. That's how Christ is glorified. The glory that Christ receives when we gather together may or may not be through the songs uh, themselves that we sing or the, the, the sermon that is just what you were hoping for or whether or not somebody greeted you or listened or paid attention to you the way you wanted them to when you were in the ABF or But Christ is that that's the life of a celebrity. If everybody pays attention, everybody's interested in them and everybody everything just goes just right. That's celebrities. Everything goes we are not, not celebrities. We're part of the body of Christ, and Christ will be most glorified when we Serve one another. This is the revolutionary stuff. That we would not be glory junkies. It's about me. I can can pick what I want. But rather we would draw ourselves under alignment of Christ before Christ, joined together with the body, and therefore in that attitude of humility, that's how we bring. Him, the true glory that He desires each time we gather. Let's pray together, and then we'll celebrate His death and uh, together as well. Heavenly Father, we're so uh, humbled by what You did for us. The One who is above all, deserving all, preeminent Creator of all. You humbled Yourself and became obedient to death on a cross that we might be forgiven. Lord, we are going to be coming to you in a moment here to take the bread and the cup and we acknowledge how you humbled yourself ultimately. And we pray that we would in the same way humble ourselves clothed with humility towards one another that we might emulate what you have shown us through the cross for which we are so thankful in Jesus' name. Amen.